I'm Colleen McNamara, and you're listening to my dad on All Marine Radio on the All Warrior Radio Network. Crosby, Steel, Nash, and Young here on a Wednesday morning. Uh, joining me are uh, two uh, veterans of the 8th Marine Regiment. Joining me from uh, the Empire State, where he's changed venues. Will Costantini. What? What happened? I muted you? Hold on. I didn't mute you. Now I'm back. Sorry. Yeah, you did. I muted you? No, I didn't. I'm unmuted now. Can you hear me? <laughs> yes. Yeah. All right. The, um, all right. So. I'm able to get through the snow. Six <laughs> inches yesterday, eight inches today. Jesus. And that's yeah. And that's why you didn't shave. Uh, it's cold up here in the Great North, you know. If you'd been to cold weather training, you know you shave before you go to bed, not when you get up in the morning, right, yeah. Jeff? Yep. That's what infantrymen know. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly what Mark Div guys know. Well, then why didn't you shave last night before you went to bed? I did. Oh, you did not. <laughs> Hey, Will, you could go to hell for lying just like you can steal and just remember that. The, um, well, you know, I was, uh, I'm not an 8th Marines guy, but I would argue with any, well, I, I, it's not much of an argument. I mean, the most noted uh, in the days of us as, uh, certainly as lieutenants, 8th um, Marines was, uh, was the regiment in, uh, in the Marine Corps. And uh, you guys are proud members of the 8th Marine Regiment. And uh, I'm sure it's a sad day in, uh, in your guys' life when, uh, uh, when the 8th Marine Regiment uh, goes away. So uh, let's talk about the 8th Marine Regiment a little bit. First of all, uh, any general thoughts? Jeff, we'll let you go first. Yeah, I mean, uh, it, it was uh, – well, when I went there, it was my first assignment – post uh the basic basic school in ioc as an officer and uh and i was excited because there are only two regiments who did the musoc thing in those days in the marine corps first marines in the first marine division and and eighth marines in the second marine division and so it was you know exciting and um plus eighth marines was had some special stuff to it. like for instance we weren't on camp Lejeune proper we were over at camp geiger and we were the last guys to we, when i got there we still had the the troops in uh, squad base i think most of the rest of the second marine division was uh was in you know the uh the queues that the troops pretty much still have now and uh although the, you know they're a little bit more plush now but uh so it was uh, he had an old school feel to it you know plus we had uh um we had a lineage that was the most recent bloodlet of the Marine Corps. Like there's a there is a fledgling monument when I first got there over by Camp Johnson. And now it's very uh you know, it's very uh impressive monument to the guys in Beirut, you know, and that was uh, of course first battalion eighth Marines. But the whole every battalion in the regiment served in Beirut. Uh two eight one eight, you know, actually saw most of the lead slinging, but three eight had some famous incidents attached to it. Uh, like the uh, Captain Johnson, who was the CEO of the company, Will and I were in when they went to Beirut the first time, and our CEO was his EXO. So we heard about it from the horse's mouth. And, and as all people who get a little bit of uh, notoriety in the Marine Corps, right away there's a bunch of horseshit rumors that come up about it. And the one about him was that he was drunk all the time and shit like that. But according to our CEO, who was one of the most honest guys I know, um, this guy was a teetotaler, and he was just a highly principled guy. 
And that's why he jumped up in that tank, put the old 1911 in the Israeli tank driver's ear and said, you ain't going any further. Yeah, tell, so, t- tell the story because not everybody understands it. Let me just tell you, this story is one of the reasons I said, right, I'm working at Merrill Lynch in Los Angeles and I get out of college and I go to work there and it sucked. You know, it was, you know, I had a degree, in, a degree in economics and I understood the markets at least a little bit. These guys were vacuum salesmen, used car salesmen. These guys could sell. And Merrill Lynch sent them to Brooks Brothers, sent, sent them to their headquarters at One Liberty Plaza for, the, for a bunch of classes. And then they came back and they sold Merrill Lynch stuff. And I'd watched the way that, you know, I mean, I would tell you that, in my opinion, the predatory way that, you know, people did business. And I was uh, I was I was appalled and uh, you couldn't be principled. You had to churn people. And so I I was like, I've got to leave. And then I I thought I either want to what do I love to do? I thought I'm either going to join the Marine Corps and not the military. I was only interested in being a Marine and um, and or I'm going to teach and coach. And I had read about the Marines, you know, in the Scholastic Book Club. I read about two things growing up as a kid. I read about sports guys and I read about, um, I read American history, primarily military history. And I knew about the Marines and they were the best team, you know, that I'd ever read about. And, um, and then my dad managed the Padres. So I'm in San Diego and I see them all over the place and they're always impressive, right? Driving by Pendleton, looking at the ships off the coast, you know, and all that kind of stuff you do when you're a civilian. I didn't know anybody who was in the Marine Corps, nobody. And so I'm contemplating whether I go teach and coach or join the Marine Corps. And in the LA Times, there's a story in 1980, it probably would have been 1982. In 1982, of this Israeli tank trying to cut through the airport. And this Marine captain stopping him with his pistol. And I said, you know, I don't know something. That's what men do. Okay. That's what men do. And here I am being just a loser doing stuff that, you know, anybody can do at any age. And that guy's on the other side of the world being a man. And, <laughs> and now what's interesting is this subject came up a while ago. And I, and then, and I mentioned to Jeff, right, one of Jeff's conniption fits. And now we're just talking. And I said, yeah. And then I didn't know. And somebody told me later that he was drunk. And Jeff goes, he wasn't drunk. <laughs> right, right. Jeff's, I know a drunk, believe me. I'm an <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And Jeff said, that's bullshit. Um, so that's kind of the background of the story. So, Jeff, now tell the story. Um, cause the story is an amazing story. It's awesome. Yeah. Well, you know, Lebanon was like one of the few peaceful places in the middle East post second world war, no matter what kind of murderous turmoil was going around, it had a delicate balance of all the ethnic groups there that was thrown into the hazard in 1970 when, um, King Hussein of Jordan threw all the PLO guys out. That's where you get black September from September of 1970. They went to Lebanon and it, it upset the, the whole balance. And then it was gunfight city for basically all the 70s and half the 80s, actually two thirds of the 80s. And uh, and so the, the Israelis went in there to uh, to back up the Christian phalangists and some of the other uh, some of the other, I guess, like the the uh, the Druze minority and so forth. And they were looking to uh, to put a hurting, I think, on the. Uh, you know, you had the, the, the south of Lebanon and southern Beirut is uh, a lot of uh, Shia. And they are now, you know, basically the bulwark of Hezbollah, which is really an arm of the Iranian government, Shia, you know, uh, people. But uh, the Israelis were on their way to, to, to kick some ass. And, uh, and you just had a, a massacre in the Shatila and Sabra refugee camps, which were Muslim, by Christian phalangists and other, you know, thug types. And so I think Captain Johnson uh, considered that letting the Israelis go through there might help, you know, by, by, uh, by omission, he would be complicit in another murderous, uh, you know, 
massacre. And so he fucking did that, man. He did it himself. He didn't order his dudes to do it. He didn't fucking, you know, deploy machine guns that I know of or anything. He just did it. And our company commander was his XO. And this guy was, uh, you know, a very measured guy. And uh, he, you know, Beirut was a cesspool. The guy got hepatitis there. And he didn't recover from it until our float. Remember, Will? Yeah. He didn't get to where he could drink a beer even, you know? And uh, he was the XO for that guy. And uh, Captain Ratliff, when he would tell you something, you knew that, uh, you know, he believed it. And it was, uh, you know, he, that was great for us. You know, he set a good example that way. And so, uh, but that's what he said about Captain Johnson. I don't know. I might, you know, I, I don't know if I got everything right, but I think pretty much, I know Will and, and, uh, and, and the skipper talked more than I did. I talked, he talked to all of us a lot. He gave us writing assignments and shit on the boat, you know, to do. But, uh, so he was good that way, but I don't know, Will, is that pretty much the way he passed it? Yeah. You know, it, it's, uh, it's, interesting we'll go back and talk about eighth marines but in regard to this you know the marines there saw the israelis as very uh being provocateurs in Mm -hmm. that um and you know it was a bad time we 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 got into that whole thing not we as marines we as a country uh a little bit naive uh and uh the Israelis were obviously complicit with uh, Sabra and Satila, uh, and that led directly to the uh, to the barracks in the embassy. Exactly, exactly right. And and you know, Blackjack Matthews, uh, you know, who's been an instructor, you know, one of the main professors at uh, command and staff in the War College uh, in Quantico for years. He was a battalion commander. He said the same thing Will said when you when we'd have like uh, PMEs about it. But he was a battalion commander. He told the story. Uh, Eighth Marines. This is the Eighth Marines personality thing it's really all marines but uh um the eighth marines you know how in all the companies they got guys who can do artistic stuff you got guys who can take their dog tag chains and run it through their nose and pull it out their ear and stuff you got guys who can you know light their ass on fire and do a backflip but you also have guys who can they're kind of artistic well this one kid in lima company made a christmas card the, the national tree of uh lebanon is the cedar tree and instead of having the uh, the Marines raise a flag on Iwo Jima on Zerubachi, they're raising the cedar tree of Lebanon. And he puts on it, and they send it to General Barrow, and it says, to you, sir, from your Marines in Beirut. And uh, he gets it, and Barrow's, like, fucking super proud of it. He goes all over D.C., and he's not that type of guy usually, but he's got to show this to everybody. He eventually gets to – you've got to go talk to President Reagan – and this story is, according to Blackjack, he shows the president, sir, look what I got from our Marines in Beirut. And Reagan looks at it, his eyes fill with tears. He goes, I've never had a better Christmas at present my whole life. He puts it in his coat. And General Barrow, you know, General Barrow's got poise. He's got balls. He doesn't, he goes back, he goes, I want another one. I want another fucking Christmas card. I want another Christmas card. Get a hold of those guys and leave them at 3-8 and get me one. So the word goes back. Who did the Christmas card for the commandant? They all shut up, as Marines do. <laughs> Nobody will rat the guy out. I think it was the FMO for fucking Sixth Fleet who finally had to say, look, man, you're not in trouble. The thing is, the president stole the commandant's Christmas <laughs> card. <laughs> and so they made him another one, a better one, and they sent it in. According to, and that's a great fucking Marine story, you know? You know, Mac, when you talk about 8th Marines, uh, when I went there summer of 86, you know, there were still plenty of Beirut veterans uh, in the battalion. And I didn't know it at the time. And this is an East Coast perspective, right? I didn't know it at the time. 8th Marines was the only regiment in the Marine Corps. Uh, We were over at Geiger, and I subsequently in later years was in 1-2, uh, and I was in two six, and very proud of those battalions. But six Marines was never a regiment regiment to me, and second Marines was never a regiment to me. When you're over there at Eighth Marines, you're on your own little island, and those battalions, you know, one was gone, one was getting ready, and one had just gotten home, and you were on that constant rotation 
with those guys. Uh, and it felt very much like this is what a regiment is supposed to be. We're all doing the same thing. Uh, we're all suffering equally together over here at Geiger, forgotten by everyone. Uh, and it was a great experience. And then you throw in that we were still in squad base. And uh, that's just a very different dynamic, uh, uh, you know, particularly for a junior officer uh, to walk into. And, um, you know, it's hard to say how much of this is, you know, rose-colored glasses, but uh, Lima Company, when I was there, particularly, we went, uh, we went to Okinawa and we came back from Okinawa. We went to Bridgeport in January and then we went to Bridgeport in August. And I think Jeff got there in May. Yeah. And that summer in Camp Lejeune, probably three quarters of the company had been to Bridgeport in January. And that summer, we were getting ready to go to Bridgeport in August. And the only thing you can do in Lejeune to get ready to go to 7,000 feet at Bridgeport is hump. And that was the most, that was the physically toughest unit I've ever been in in my life. Uh, maybe not the best unit, uh, but the most physically right. tough unit and uh and i think of everything that happened to me in the marine corps i never saw weird stuff like i saw <laughs> as a lieutenant that i'm not sure anything could surprise me after that three years two deployments you know 500 odd deployed days going everywhere by all modes of transportation it was a great experience and I'll tell you, when I went to the basic school and a lot of the guys on the staff there, I thought to myself, what Marine Corps were they in? Because uh, Dave Bice was my first battalion commander, one of the all-time hard guys. Yeah. Uh, she handed uh, Mr. Regiment. Yeah, Ray Smith, uh, Colonel Blackman. It was a very, you know, this idea of brilliance in the basics. We didn't say those words back then, but it was a fundamental... Uh, organization and it was definitely had a regimental feel to it that I never had in the other battalions I was in there. Uh, so, you know, something else that Lima company we did a shitload of live fire and movement. If we didn't, if we had like enough for like 40 rounds per man, we would do squad attacks. And like Will said, I mean, this is the first time I heard it. I had already been in the Marine Corps 12 years. He goes, Look, you're all trained. 40, 50, 60 rounds is plenty. If you just shoot rapid fire like we teach you on the rifle range, it's going to sound when there's, you know, 10 or 11 or because we never had TO squads going down, you know, going down to R5 type scenario. It's going to sound like thunder, man. And it was absolutely true. So, again, and again, we didn't do anything real on that first float, but we did we did all kind of uh Squad oh, yeah. level and platoon level live firing all over the place. And I'll tell you what, when I got to the base school, I will say, I remember you, you and Kennedy said that article, why the first fire team won't rush. I remember thinking, cause I, I was watching lieutenants. I was watching guys run in R five. I'm thinking, where the fuck were these guys? You know, because, uh, it never was an issue for me, but I could see it was. And, and the idea of teaching that to lieutenants so then they get right. They get to the fleet, all of them, and all the regiments, and know, you know, that uh, the whole thing's got to be, um, you know, uh, base unit, and you know, leading. That's why they call them squad leaders and fire team leaders, and not fire team commanders, because the guys key off them what they do. And I'll tell you, that got hammered home to me in uh, in Lima Three A by Captain Ratliff and by and Will and all the. Because Will had been the super squad lieutenant for 3-8 in Okinawa, and they won it for 3rd Marine Division. When they got to the States, they did it. They won again the next year for 2nd Marine Division. It was Dan Hodges, who was the lieutenant in charge. And the battalion commander for both those was this guy, Bice, who was like, he, was, he would have been great on recruiting duty, but there would have been suicides all over the place. <laughs> he was a hard-driving dude, man. And, uh, and Dan Hodges' guys won it. And we had, uh, like, Will's uh, super squad leader was my assistant team leader when I was in recon, Dave Peterson. Remember him, Will? Oh, yeah. And then the guy after him is a guy named Messina, who was from Brooklyn. He's a typical Brooklyn tough guy, man. It was just a great 
you know, I don't like everybody has stories like that about their unit. But uh, I just got to say, I think about it a lot because uh, it was a good, you know, if you learn something, um, Hackworth used to say, if you learn it right the first time, you'll never fuck it up. But if you don't learn it right, you'll spend the rest of your, your, your life trying to learn how to do it right. You know, we learned it right. So, you know, Mac, when we, so me and Jeff were on the LST and uh, we spent about three weeks in Israel. And we were one of the first units that deployed there for training. A few units have been through there, but we were in the first, I want to say, two or three. We went out of there, we went to Turkey, and the rest of the MU went to, uh, they went to Palmon Liberty. And we did single ship operation in Egypt in 1989. In Egypt, this is, you know, the wall hasn't fallen yet. Egypt is very Soviet controlled. And uh, so we took AVs up into the Sahara Desert uh, outside Alexandria. And we dug in a platoon sized position. Yep. And it was a, it was a, here is what a standard platoon sized position looks like fighting holes, all of that going on. Tactical wires, everything. And then we registered some mortars, and then we did a live fire night attack better than range 400, 60 miles inland from the coast. No helicopter standing by, no ambulance standing by, uh, but that unit was good. Uh, and I think about that now, and uh, we might have been crazy. Um, but there wasn't anyone there that was really concerned about it. You know, we dug this thing in, we set up the mortars, we did the right rehearsal, we did the daylight, and then we did a live fire night attack under 60 mortar loom, uh, phenomenally great exercise that was just, what else are you going to do? You know, you're out in the middle of the desert. Why wouldn't you do something like that? And uh, and again, I realized it took me a while after I'd gone to the base school for a while, realized that our training in that unit, and I give Mike Ratliff a huge amount of credit for that, but also the deployment cycle that we did had really set us up um, to perform uh, at that level. And I realized a lot of people just didn't have that. They didn't have those fundamentals. I mean... You know, Jeff was in Lima Company longer than me, but I was in one rifle company for 36 straight months. Um, you know, that's how that's the experience you're supposed to have yeah. as a second lieutenant and first lieutenant. When you know half the guys last four when you're the XO. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. By the time you're the XO, you know every guy in the company. And when I say know them, some of the new joints took a little while, but then you did six month workup, six month deployment. You knew every guy yep. because you'd heard from every platoon commander, every story about every guy. Uh, yeah, it was uh, it was a great fundamental experience. And again, I give a lot of credit. We, we ended up we had to move to main side uh, late in that, but I give a lot of credit to that squad bay deployment intensive. Uh, Focus, and I, I don't know what it was like on the West Coast, but you know, you've been to Lejeune. The rest of the East Coast battalions now, all the battalions, they're all over at Mainside. They're just in a big stack. Yeah, and, and when I left Lima, goes. And when I left Lima Company, guess who came in as a new CO? He's a uh, Dutch Lima, Schreiber. Dutch Schreiber. So Lima Company's, you know, future was assured at least for a while because he had his shit together, you know. Dutch, Dutch was a great guy. I I think there's something to be said from be for being geographically separated where you own. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And and like, yeah. you know, what I mean that is that was my experience on the West Coast was that you, you were in your own place, and that was yours. I I mean I showed up, you know, like Jeff uh, when Fifth Marines was at Margarita. Margarita. And uh, I you know I just went back and 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 did post traumatic winning there for headquarters battalions down there. But, you know, 
walk into the same CP you reported to as a second lieutenant in 1984, right? And, uh, you know, you just walk in, and, and, you know, it's a little bit different, but it's the exact same. And, uh, and I, you know, one of the things I remember was my regimental commander was Marty Brantner. Uh, oh, yeah. When I showed up. Cross. Yeah, Navy Cross guy. And he had the majority of his, I think it's right calf, shot off. And, you know, every, you know, I don't know how many times a week we'd see him at lunch PTing, right? And he's hobbling and he's grinding out this run, right, with like... I don't know how much of his calf gone and he's running by and we're looking at him going, dude's yeah. harder than woodpecker lips, man. And, oh, and, and anybody I think that was above the rank of major in 1984, you know, was Vietnam guy. I mean, and, and they, they'd roll in with their, you know, I remember, uh, I don't know if you remember a Colonel by the name of Hopgood. If it, and Marvin Hopkins oh, gave gave the first oh. reading PME that I that I ever went to in my life regimental reading PME, and that's the first time I ever heard of the, the book The Forgotten Soldier, and I you know and I was a reader relative to most Marine officers at the time, which meant you read something because we yeah. didn't read you know we didn't read and so. Um, no, you look back on, on those guys. Our Sergeant Major had fought in Korea. Sergeant Major Sakamano, you couldn't you couldn't understand anything he said, but he was a <laughs> massive man. I mean, he'd call the battalion to attention like this. <laughs> and when he went, <laughs> when he went, <laughs> everybody snapped. Everybody That's snapped it. too. But he was this awesome guy. I remember... I had a sergeant by the name of Tony Jarrett. His dad, I think, was a sergeant major. His older brother was a gunny, and he was gr- he was a great sergeant. And my platoon sergeant was going to go get his GED because he never graduated from high school. Is this Rich Stebbins you're talking about? Cause no, Stebbins Rich was Rich and me were sergeants together. No, Stebbins was after him, okay. after Jarrett. So, well, while well, Jarrett was still there. But, uh, um... Uh, Jarrett was he was he was an outstanding outstanding sergeant he'd been raised in the Marine Corps man he took shit from nobody man you'd see him with his coffee cup and that green notebook and he'd be he'd be going back in to deal with Marines and 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 they loved him but he was tough man he was tough and so I get another sergeant I think maybe from weapons platoon and uh, he wasn't very good, but he was senior to Jared. And, oh, that's and, a sticky way. Right. And so and so it was like, well, you've got to let him. You know, my first sergeant had come from the air wing. Well, he's senior. You've got to give him the opportunity. I said, but it's not close. He's been Did in you guys the have heat tab. That's why God invented heat tabs and coffee cups. <laughs> so, <laughs> so. <laughs> I went over to see Sergeant Major Sakamano, and I, I'm a second lieutenant. I knock on his hatch, and I said, hey, Sergeant Major, I got a question for you. Um, I got my platoon sergeant's leaving. I've got two sergeants, and it's not even close. I got one who's head and shoulders above the other. And I'm getting told that because the other one's senior, I've got to give him the job. And, and I don't think it's right because he's not the best guy. And he looked at me and he said, look, um, what you owe your Marines is the best leadership that you can give them. He said, if it's close, the senior guy should get the first opportunity. If it's not close, then it's not close. You give them the best leader because that's the requirement. He said, if I had to wait till I was senior to get the jobs I got in the Marine Corps, he said, I wouldn't have got half of them. I mean, he's right. just, he's just a great, great guy. But these guys, I mean, fought in the Korean War. I mean, yeah. and I'll tell you what, and he, amazing. And here's a, you know, here's a modern Marine story from 1986. Jeff, I don't know if you remember a guy named Britton. Yeah. Britain. Yeah. Britain, Britain is this uh, 6'1", 185, twisted steel, black guy from Alabama. Right. And, uh, you know, I, I'm 
I checked in on a Monday, Thursday, we went to Norway for 10 weeks, come back. And it's probably two weeks later. And, uh, I get in there and, uh, Britain has got somebody and they're coming in and it's like six 30 and this guy's just completely covered with mud. <laughs> That's interesting. And, uh, so I asked platoon sergeant and said, hey, what's going on? He says, well, uh, you know, Corporal Britain makes the rounds. Well, what do you mean? Britain used to drink two canteens at taps every night. And they did taps, lights out, you know. Right. So that he would have to wake up at 1.30 in the morning because he'd have to piss. And when he did that, he would check all the fire watches and all the duty and the duty NCO. And the guys that were not uh, alert, et cetera, the next morning would go out and dig fighting holes. <laughs> that was a corporal. And, you know, and everyone knew that's what Corporal Britain did. That's how you enforce discipline uh, in a squad bag uh, with an NCO. And uh, Britain ended up. He got out, uh, and he was an Alabama state trooper. And the last time I talked to him, it's been a while. It's been a long time. He was on the uh, governor's personal protection detail in Alabama. Uh, you know, and I'll tell you, one of the all-time tough guys I've ever seen. Yeah. You know, that margarita thing, that was something. Uh that, first of all, that guy Brantner, you know, he won two Navy crosses in Vietnam about 10 days apart. Yeah, the story's amazing. And it's an amazing story. And when I was up there, um, we had James Williams, who was a company commander at Dai Do. And the XO when I first got there was General Livingston, Major Livingston then, Larry Livingston. And uh, so, like, we used to go stand out there for formation, and, uh, and, and in battalion formation, You'd ha the company commanders have to say, you know, all present are accounted for. But we were never all present and accounted for. They have to say how many UAs they had. And there'd be like a gasp, right? Uh, you know what I mean? <laughs> Through the ranks in some of these companies. Seven UA, you know? You know what I mean? And stuff like that. But I remember wherever – my company, Gunny, was a guy who was my NCIC in Tehran, Gunny Step. So we go out there. He always with your company, oh, ten, and somebody – had drawn a fucking middle finger hand right where he stood. And he goes, company, I'll tell And he looks down and he goes, was this intended for me? Well, fuck all of you, too. And we all fucking busted out laughing, man. You know, I never saw anything <laughs> like that before or since. You know, but that was, uh, there was definitely some pizzazz to the guys up there at Margarita, you know. And uh, again, every, every regiment in Pendleton, is isolated from the other one yeah. because of the, you know, so it's a it's a different dynamic. But the but the eighth Marines thing was when then once we we got over to main side, I'm like this fucking sucks because yeah. uh, we were all jammed in. I mean, uh, you know, it took like ten minutes to walk through every every uh, regiment's area, and they're all competing for who has the best lawn and shit. It was a misery, you know, what I mean? <laughs> compared to uh, to being at the uh, you know, a Geiger. Yeah, the beauty of Geiger, too, is, as an XO, yeah. it was easy to do training planning. You mm -hmm. didn't have to. You just put your shit on a Monday afternoon and went to the field. And you went to the on that yeah. side of the river. Uh, well, let's, um, I mean, in honor of 8th Marines, um, I'm not an 8th Marines guy, but a um, uh, little history of 8th Marines. Um, you guys were around the regiment for a long time. Um, the, the biggest events, the biggest people in 8th Marines. Well, go ahead. You go, Will. For yeah, you know, I was going to say, when I was there, it was all the Beirut stuff. You know, the, the uh, Tarawa, et cetera, was not a piece of the regimental history uh, at that time. But it was, and it's funny, Beirut was seen by those guys as an endurance test and you know you you had your man card when you had 12 months in beirut uh two straight deployments and uh you know that was one of the things as a second lieutenant you know it used to be you know i got more airtime off the back of a five ton than you got in the fleet well <laughs> these guys had more 
more time uh, sitting around that airport uh, than any lieutenant joining the unit did. Uh, and and again, like Jeff said, it was the last major event in the Marine Corps. This is the late 80s. Um, and so that was, that was uh, you know, the, the people at Lejeune wanted to be an 8th Marines. Um, Everybody wanted to be an 8th Marines, Marines, right? Everybody at Pendleton wanted to be an 8th Marines. They were the only people doing anything. And you're just like, oh, man. I mean, these guys at 8th Marines, it's like. Yeah, and it's funny. I got there, and my first appointment was a UDP. It was the first time 8th Marines, you know, had been west of the international dateline since, like, 1945. Uh, is when 3-8 went, went on UDP. All right. Uh, so, <laughs> Go figure. Yeah. Well, you know, into the cycle. Yeah, I think 8th Marines' big combat, the first combat they saw as a regiment was Guadalcanal. And they, yeah. and when the 1st Marine Division went in on August 7th, they had, they had their normal regiments, but they didn't have 7th Marines, which is in Samoa. So they replaced them with 2nd Marines. And 2nd Marines were one of the first units to land like in Tulagi and so forth, you know, Gavavudu, and then to be in Guala, you know, on Guadalcanal. Then they got replaced by the Eighth Marines, and then the last Second Marine Division to be at Guadalcanal was the Sixth Marine Regiment. And uh, but then uh, the big, the big bloodletting for Second Mardiv, you know, more than um, except maybe Saipan was uh, Tarawa, and Two Eight was commanded by a guy named. Uh, Crow, Samuel Crow, who his nickname was Jim Crow. Why someone would want that nickname, I don't know. But uh, and he was a colorful guy, um, and uh, and so and then, but they got they got hammered. Like one eight got hammered trying to get in there, and uh, you know, and, uh, and three eight took some hits too. You know, but uh, it was uh, that was their first real bloodletting, and then um, you know they uh, not much. You know, they, the, the only guys, the 8th Marines actually was a regiment that participated at the very end of Okinawa. I mean, they're on Saipan, but then, uh, and they lost a lot of guys there. But then the, the last thing they did in World War II is they were in Okinawa. As a matter of fact, the, the, the general, General Buckner uh, of the 10th Army, you know, in command over all the Marines, he was watching them do an attack near the end of the Okinawa campaign. And a round hit, a Japanese mortar round hit nearby, and a piece of coral hit him in the chest and it killed him. And that's when General Geiger became the CG of the 10th Army for like a couple weeks, watching 8th Marines do that. But then they didn't really see it again until uh, I think they went ashore. I think it was them who went ashore in 58. So I know General Mundy was a fucking platoon commander in in, uh, in uh, Beirut when they went ashore in 58. It was They lost a couple guys. And, uh, you know, it was a pretty inconclusive thing, kind of like Dominican Republic, you know, in 65. But then it wasn't till, like Will was saying, once uh, the first thing I think we did, and I don't know which one of the battalions participated in the evacuation of the PLO out of uh, that area of Beirut. And then after that, it was uh, like Will was saying, everybody did, you know, at least uh, one or two. Matter of fact, I think the last company in Beirut in 1984 was Hirsch Hernandez. And uh, and the India Company three, I think. Yeah. Yeah, Mac. Here's how jacked up the Marine Corps was in those days too. Guys could cross deck, so a guy <laughs> would spend six months in Beirut, and as the new Mew came in, they could just transfer to the battalion came in. Yeah, in Rhode Island, twelve, twelve straight months in Lebanon. I mean. In the early 80s, we were so hurting for manpower that we had guys stay deployed for 12 months at a whack. Wow. Uh, and they volunteered for it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Same thing when, well, the, when 3 5, when 5th Marines started doing UDP, guys were trying to get into 5th Marines like nobody's business, man. And then 5th Marines guys were doing that. Guys from 1 5, they're like, fuck, I want to go back to Okinawa. You know, so they switched. We had guys from a, my, my state platoon, half my guys were 1 5 dudes who got sick of being in America, wanted to go back to, you know, to uh, Oki and Philippines, Korea and all that shit. You know, um, one of the things about Beirut that I think is interesting that anybody can do, but um, pull out Google Earth 
and just look at how close um, yeah. I was interviewing Ron Baskowski, right? I'm retired as a brigadier general. I meet Ron Baskowski at the basic school. I'm a, I'm a student, lieutenant, and here's this first lieutenant uh, who's got this huge dip in who had just come back, back from Beirut, just come back. And he went on leave, and then he came to the basic school. And uh, he's, he, the first terrain model I ever saw built was built by Ron Baskowski. And I thought it was a miracle of technology because we were doing squ- we we're doing squat-a-thon, which is like you do squat attacks for how many, you know, for like oh, two yeah. days, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Squat in the attack. And so we were out by, and this is inside baseball stuff because Will and Jeff know, but we're out by MA- <laughs> MA6. And Baskowski shows up in the middle of the day and he takes over. And the guy who, who was with us, he's kind of, you know, snapping him in, in retrospect. Baskowski, you know, he busts out all of his, all this MRE stuff and some string and some little note cards and things like that. And he makes his train model. I'd never seen one in my life. And I'm looking at it going, holy shit, man, who is this guy? And then we... We go into the attack, and everything that he put in the train model was there. We went, yeah. you know, we go down this this finger, we go across a draw, we go up this thing, and then bigger than shit on the other side. Here's the objective, and everything that he drew was there. And it's like you had this visual image, and I'm like, this guy's the greatest officer I've ever met in my life. But um. But I'm interviewing yeah, he's him. He's a smart fucking guy. I'll oh tell you my that God. might be true. And, and again, yeah. very, very measured and even soft-spoken, right? But just sharp as a tack, Ron Bat- and just a nice, nice guy. But um, when I'm interviewing him, he's talking about the proximity of the Shoof Mountains to Beirut. And he said, you know, Mike, yeah. you really has to have to bust out a map. So I would I would tell you to do that. Get out your Google Earth and look at the map and then take your, take your little tape measure thing and just start measuring distances right to the mountains and uh, it's a those mountains are right on top of that airport yeah. right well, Helen, I, went beirut, I went to beirut and when i was in egypt and not only are they right on top of you they go straight up and the city is built right into right. it the embassy is when i was there the embassy couldn't have been I don't think the embassy was a half mile from the beach. Yeah, it's like a big, how many big high rides up? It, you know. Yeah, but, I got uh, there. I went there. When I was in Tehran. Yeah. Well, this was a this this is a new embassy because right. that one had gotten blown up. No, but it, it got blown up it, in '83, right? Yeah, it's it's. I mean, it's got a great ocean view, and the city is built right into these yeah. things. The only flat spot there. It's is amazing right, place right around yeah. the port. In the uh, in the air, in the air, in the airport, uh, yeah. And you know, did you you must have seen the video when that uh, building blew up like six months ago or something? Yeah, it was amazing. Seen that? Yeah, Mac, you ever seen that on YouTube? You gotta look, just go on YouTube and look at uh, Beirut explosion. Uh, and it was about six months ago. This building full of fertilizer blew up. But one of the reasons it caused so much damage, other than the fact that like the size of a nuclear bomb, is that it bounced off of those mountains that were right there. Right. And, uh, yeah, it's and the thing is, it's a it's an unbelievably scenic place too. Really scenic. No. no. This is just, just been sometime in the last year, um, and and it's and it's something too because once you you from Beirut. As you swing south, parts of Israel that way down to Haifa, but even then the mountains are pushed back. But it's a it's a very different uh, view from the water uh, to to Lebanon. You know, particularly when I've been in Egypt, right. you know, because Egypt is flat for I don't know how long. Uh, so it was really it was really interesting to fly in there and. Uh, yeah, I think you know there was a there was a snowstorm up there when three eight was in there. They were like there um, in eighty two. There's a big, big snowstorm. They sent the AAV platoon up to help get people out of there. Way up in the um, 
you know, out of the Beirut and everything. Yeah. And, uh, so that, that was, uh, yeah, that's, uh, it, it, the whole geography of the, the Middle East is, you know, when, when, when you're young, you know, and you, and you hear about it in the news, you kind of have this picture of, you know, desert or, you know, Savannah type stuff, but <laughs> it's really not that, you know, it's really not that. Well, you remember Mike Etor, right? right. You remember Mike Etor. So Mike Etor, uh, was a platoon commander for Ray Smith in Beirut, well, Grenada, and then Beirut. And uh, his first squad leader is a guy named Frank Spivey. And that guy was my, my company gunny when I was, uh, and later my first company gunny for, for Golf Company 22, and then my first sergeant in Weapons 22. And uh, you couldn't find a more, um, you know, better staff and CO. And yeah, I was like, tell you, it, it, uh, when I was with the UN in, after the Gulf War, uh, you know, the British Army was drawn down. The British Army at that time, I don't know, it was 120, 130, 150,000 guys. And they were rolling up regiments that were 300 years old. Yeah, I remember and, that. And those guys spoke, and it, I mean, it hurt them. These, are, these guys were in these regiments that their great great grandfathers had served in. So it, it's not quite that way for us, but um, you, you would hope. Well, just so everybody knows, like, the British regimental system was linked to geographic areas, right? And so, right, and so when you talked about the Chelsea Royal, whatever the Fusiliers or whatever, I mean, Will saying my grandfather, my grandfather's grandfather, right? I mean, it goes back to like the Battle of Hastings and shit like that. And so these guys, well, why don't you just join the, you know, the next one over? And they were like, no, I couldn't do that. You're right. You're right. You guys, yeah. the, the, the whole Zulu uh, thing right. in uh, Isla Luana and Rourke's Drift, that was a 24th foot, a Welsh regiment. And they had, you know, a lot, very strong traditions, you know? Absolutely. And, and as, as, you know, it's inevitable that the Marine Corps is going to expand and contract. But when you shut down those kinds of things, you would hope that it would be emotional for the people that served with those units, because if it's not, if it's just mechanical, uh, then you're actually not the Marine Corps. Yeah. Uh, so, um, yeah, those were very formative. They were deformative years for me. And yeah, uh, if I had any any success, I could give a lot of credit. You know, the, the unit is the unit, but to the people that were in the unit at that time, uh, you know, I don't. Uh, I, I I always uh, think back fondly uh, to those days, as miserable as a lot of them were. But in a lot of ways, that's what you joined me for. Uh, you didn't spend a lot of time in the Camp Lejeune when you were in 3-8 in the late 80s. Uh, so great unit. Uh, yeah, we'll see. We'll see what happens uh, as the commandant reorganizes. Is there's going to be a lot more of this going on. And uh, it should hurt um, yeah, I'll tell you, Mike Etor is going to be shedding the t- that guy is like the most passionate um, eighth Marines, uh, you know, advocate and a, and a very competent, super com- uber competent guy, you know. And uh, you know, I know that uh, every once in a while, you know, we'll talk, and uh, a lot of it is exactly what we've been talking about, you know. All right, I, I agree. Sad day when your history, and again, in in our lifetime. Eighth Marine Regiments in the, in the 80s. I mean, that was America's regiment, and they were over there doing great things. And they seemed to always be in the thick of everything. And, and the rest of us were all envious of of, uh, of what you guys were doing and, and what the record of Eighth Marines. So so anyway, all right, boys, I appreciate your time tonight. Have a great uh, evening, and uh, we'll talk to you. See ya. That will do it on a Wednesday morning. My apologize for the audio distortion, but I'm limited in what I can do when I'm expeditionary. And one of the limitations is 
Jeff and Will are on the same Skype channel, and you can hear different things in that channel. They were on separate channels. It would be easier, but that is not the case. It's a little behind the curtain audio production. Yeah. Yeah. So anyhow, pretty amazing day yesterday with post-traumatic winter. Um, that new river. Yeah, I mean, I've done it for a long time, and wow. Um, the number of Marines that came up, one of uh, I always say I have the coolest job in the world, and I do. And it gets cooler. Uh, and, you know, again, I I say this, and I'm sure people get tired of me, hearing me say it, but, um, and it just continues to get better and better and better. So, if you haven't done so, go out and change somebody's life. It's a pretty above average experience. So, I'm gonna get out of here and uh, hopefully go do some of that today. And I would invite you to do the same. So, live the high life, man. Just finishing like the last five seconds of my 